you're a young, nervous civilization about to send out its first deep space probe, you want to make sure whoever finds it is going to want to be your friend. And the best way to do that is to send a mixtape. Earth's Mixtape is the podcast where we dive into the contents of the Voyager Golden Record. One song at a time, one picture at a time, one whale song at a time. Welcome back to Earth's Mixtape. This is the podcast where we review the contents of the Voyager Golden Record. I'm Mike Dunlavey, and with me as always is... Roby Austin. And... Hannah Ayler. This episode, we'll be talking about musical selections from Austria and Georgia, as well as photos relating to the concept of family from the Golden Record Photo Archive. Let's begin. We're going to start this week by talking about track 11. Track 11 is the Queen of the Night aria by Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. It runs 2 minutes 55 seconds. It's from his opera, The Magic Flute. Performed by soprano Edda Moser, and she is performing with the Bavarian State Orchestra, Wolfgang Sawalisch, conductor. I have some questions about this uh, choice. First of all, I don't really remember what it means, I, this opera. Do, do you... Did any of the careful people who do research for this podcast oh, actually? Yes. Oh, <laughs> Hannah wins a prize. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I've heard this piece many times before, uh, listening to the magic flute in my mom's van growing up, mm-hmm. uh, but I had no idea what it was actually about, and it is not at all what I imagined it was about. It's pretty mean. Yeah, it's much. It, it's very mean, much meaner than I expected, and the translation of the name of this aria translates to Hell's Vengeance Boils in My Heart. Um, Der Holle Rasch kocht in meinem Herzen. <laughs> that. <laughs> the untranslated version. Yeah. <laughs> so if you, I can read you the lyrics if you'd like. I would um, love so that. So the libretto to The Magic Flute was written by Emmanuel Schikaneder. Uh, so it reads, The vengeance of hell boils in my heart. Death and despair blaze around me. If not by thee, Sarastro feels the pains of death, then you will be my daughter nevermore. Outcast be forever, forsaken be forever, shattered be forever, all the bonds of nature. If not by thee, Sarastro turns pale. Hear ye, hear ye, hear ye, gods of vengeance, hear the mother's oath. So in this, uh, the queen of the night is trying to get her daughter to kill her enemy. So we're sending this to the outer space peoples. (laughs) giving them the vengeance of hell and uh, if they can speak German. This is German? This is German, right? German. This is in German, Okay, yes. If they can Germanic. speak German, um, we might be screwed. And it's also, I think, the first example of, like, outright fiction that we're sending on this. Like, oh, yeah. we, we, well, all jo- of the Johnny pic- Be Good, I guess, autobiographical in a sense, but... I guess that one was also sort of fiction. Yeah. This one is like a piece of a large fictional work, and fiction's complicated. Well, it is, but I'm not sure that the OSPs, the outer space people, are going to be able to tune into those differences. The misgiving I have is it's a recording of a... It's it's an incredibly complicated piece to sing for the soprano. Sure. Very rare to be a coloratura soprano-like she is yeah and it, it it reaches points where it to me it no longer even sounds like a human voice like it, it's a very strange representation of human singing to be singing I guess to it's the, the most extreme case apparently so. it's a high f6 note that's messed up <laughs> <laughs> 
And yeah, it's commonly known as the Queen of the Night aria, although the Queen of the Night has two arias in the Magic Flute. She does indeed. And, and she never existed. Like, there was no historical person... It's, it may slightly be I meant wish to there be was a queen of the night. <laughs> so <laughs> there is possibly a person who was disliked by the Masons because she was busily outlawing the Masons. That's right. There's a lot of Masonic imagery in, in the in the magic flute. That's right. And so uh, this lady who was like queen of, mm, let's say, Prussia, could be Austria, I can't remember, sorry folks, probably called Catherine because there were a heck of a lot of queens called <laughs> Catherine. Uh, in my memory, the queen of the night was kind of meant to be a dig at her because ultimately she she's the loser, <laughs> and not yeah. to give away the ending of this uh, amazing <laughs> opera. but The part was originated by Mozart's sister-in-law, oh. Josepha Hofer. You got to believe that he wrote it for somebody who he knew could hit those notes. He wrote it, yeah, explicitly for the people who are in it. The Emmanuel Schikaneder, who Hannah bravely named earlier, <laughs> besides being the librettist, also originated the role of Papageno. Ah. Sort of the comic relief. Yeah, that's a, the most fun it. part. Yeah. <laughs> it's the one opera piece on the Voyager Golden Record. Well, as I say, I'm kind of comfortable with us not sending a whole lot of fiction out there because fiction is weird and hard to explain and there's it's just yeah. there's a lot going on there that is not just music and not just lyrics and not just the story of Earth and humanity. It's it's like a deep probing into the human condition, which is difficult to explain. Yeah, and I, I do find it, if you're going to include an opera piece, I find it interesting that this is the piece they chose. Nothing from the... I mean, opera classically is, you know, Italian opera is the sort of... Is what people think of. Is well, it, around my house is what people think of. No Verdi. Yeah. So this was Mozart's final opera, premiered in 1791, three months before his death. So this is an end-of-the-road thing for Mozart, but I think Mozart was only in his mid-30s when he died. And they make a mention in Murmurs of Earth that this was a thing they noticed after the fact. This is one of four musical choices that have a nocturnal theme. There's there's a night chant coming up. We've had a few. Um, we've had one about the one of the Aborigine pieces was about nighttime. Oh, there's a there's a blues song coming up. Did they say that was an intentional choice? It was unintentional. It was oh. a thing they noticed after the fact okay. that they were sending this record off into the inky blackness of space with these, with the Queen of the Night. With the Queen of the Night. Although, I mean, that's just her title. It's not very nocturnal as pieces go. If I, if yeah, I can no, nitpick, which absolutely. is, of course, what I do. <laughs> Sorry. Podcast nitpicker. Really <laughs> I'm available for parties. <laughs> <laughs> what parties would you like to be invited to for nitpicking? Well, purposes? obviously none. <laughs> <laughs> Reasonable rates, is what saying. <laughs> That's right. Okay. So I really think uh, this is an interesting choice in that it does show the limits of a human voice in the high oh, end. Oh, that's an interesting point. Yeah, it's uh, it's a it's a good choice for that. I, but they do hit all the notes. So <laughs> as far as the OSPs are concerned, we can still go higher. We have no problem with these ones. Uh, so you think it's a bit of showing off? I absolutely think it's showing off. Like, oh, look how high our voices can go. Okay, and and. Resuming a previous topic, you wake up in an alien prison cell. Queen of the Night Aria comes down. I thought we were just walking along a hallway. This, this prison cell is <laughs> Oh, new sorry. To me. It you're, can be a. <laughs> you're, you're, in a, you're in a small middle room. 
<laughs> you're, free, you're free to come and go as you please. Uh, you get the faint hum of uh, interstellar engines coming through the floor. You hear the Queen of the Night aria. Hannah, how do you feel? I think it's an appropriate piece for an alien spaceship. No, there's just something about it that seems like, I don't know, it's intriguing. I would be terrified. <laughs> I would be terrified as well. And getting back to your recitation of the translated well, lyrics. Well, now that I know what it means, I, I'd be terrified. Right, but, but so maybe this will be but my... the music itself. This will be my last question to you, too. Uh, if these lyrics were in English, do you oh, think the, the Golden Record folks would have picked it? I'm not saying they weren't unaware of what the, the subject of the aria is, but it might have meant more if they, it was in English. Like it, it might not have lifted their heart. Quite yeah. so much. What was the oh, phrase? Yeah, that, Touch the brain as well as the heart. I, I'm going to get that quote more and more wrong as these episodes are <laughs> I refuse to go back and look it up again, though. Scratch the cerebellum. <laughs> Open the arteries. <laughs> All right. This piece comes close to doing that. <laughs> like by threatening to make you go pale and murdering you? Yeah. That one? Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, I... She's, it's a weird piece in the context of the opera as well because, like, she's kind of a toothless villain. Like, you, you're you're being told by her that Sarastro is the bad guy, and then it turns out that Sarastro is the good guy, and she's just a mean old lady after all. So I just, I think even if you know the lyrics, um, well, and the lyrics are her manipulating her daughter into attacking Sarastro. It's it's a. She's not a direct villain. She's not attacking herself. She's not attacking Sarastro herself. Well, yeah. At least in this. She is threatening to disown her daughter if her daughter doesn't kill Sarastro, well, which is... That's which just is... mother-daughter interaction. <laughs> Actually, thinking more about it, I think this is a song you would hear while some aliens on a spaceship are, like, dissecting a live body. I, okay. I can pick... <laughs> This is I the vivisection picture, soundtrack. Yeah, I, I think I can picture this happening. Songs to vivisect to. Yeah. <laughs> Hannah Ehler. So maybe not a good one to hear on a ship. But just just picture, just picture hearing this. They're this, bopping along to the beat like there's a there's a high tempo. And then there's just a person on a table being a human person. Yeah, yeah, being cut apart by aliens. Well, I enjoyed sleeping. on to talk about the next four pictures in the photos of Earth. Photos 35 through 38. Uh, Picture 35 is titled Father and Child, uh, credited to David Harvey from the Woodfin Camp Incorporated. And it shows a happy-looking man proudly holding a young girl. She's kind of sitting up on his shoulder, and he's looking up at her, and she's staring at the camera. Yeah. And she has a great expression on her face. It's fairly bland. It's fairly unimpressed. I think she looks like a warrior, like a little young warrior princess. Okay, I can see that. She's got that kid look that says, yeah, I am here, deal with me. Yeah. 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 She doesn't take any crap. (laughs) Yeah. And it's it's kind of a natural follow-on picture from the previous one, picture 34, which was showing the mother nursing the infant. Uh, that yes. was the kind of the end of the human reproductive cycle as they were showing in the photos. And oh, this and is, now we're growing up. Now we're now we're still growing up a little bit. Yeah, I, I think it's I think it's a natural sequel to the photo of the mother holding a child. I think this is just a pleasant photo. They they sent it in color for reasons I'm not entirely sure. Hmm. We'll move on then to picture 36, titled "Group of Children," photo by Ruby Meir from UNICEF. 
uh, shows a group of kids sitting around in a circle. It was taken at the UN International School, which is the school in New York City where the children of UN delegates go. Oh, wow. I didn't realize that. So you see a, you know, a large spectrum of different peoples of Earth. They could have just gone to my elementary school. That's what my kindergarten (laughs) class looked like. Okay. Just saying. Uh, Go Toronto. Bunch of kids sitting around, kneeling around in a circle with one kid in the middle. I like to think in a non-accusatory fashion. I like to think that kid in the middle isn't it's being not subjected the Caucasian to... shock circle, yes. Yeah. The captions and murmurs of Earth talk about how one of the things they liked about the photo, besides the things we've already mentioned, is it shows the kids kind of sitting in a bunch of different positions. There's the kid in the back kneeling, some people sitting cross-legged, some people just sitting straight, and it sort of just shows different ways that human, at least human children, sort of... That's right, They're, and their arms are all in different positions. Some yeah. have their hands to their faces, and some have their hands by their sides. And It's a pleasing image to me. I, I thought I had warm memories of a kindergarten. <laughs> yeah, I'm impressed with the diversity in the picture. I wasn't uh, quite expecting that, but it's, it's nice. So... For those who have listened to all of our episodes up to now, what you're hearing is us being highly in favor of the photos being chosen, and this might be a new thing for you to hear. (laughs) So at this point, uh, we have listeners complaining that we're being too negative. Enjoy us talking about these two photos, because we're now going to move on to photos 37 and 38. And back to our regularly scheduled Hey, everyone. This is Hannah talking to you from the future. What you're about to hear is a long discussion about pictures 37 and 38. We were operating on info from Murmurs of Earth that the family photo in picture 38 contained members spanning five generations. We have since learned that there are only four generations represented. We made the decision to leave the recorded discussion as is, but we wanted to let you know in advance that we now know the truth. And we now know to always double source any information from Murmurs of Earth. And now, back to the show. Titled Family Portrait and Silhouette, photo 38 is taken by Nina Lean for Life Magazine, copyright 1947, also used in the Family of Man collection we talked about in the last episode. The photo shows five generations of an Ozark farming family, uh, with a sixth generation represented in the photos, the paintings hanging on the wall behind them. Picture 37 is a silhouette of four of the figures from that family photo showing people at the different generational levels. And I can't begin to say how pleased I was with myself when I figured out what that was because uh, it took a little while. And I'm sure the, the aliens, whatever you've been calling them, OSPs, will also have that kind of time to devote to the question of who the heck those silhouettes are supposed to represent. But uh, it... it Took, took you mean me matching them up with the next picture? That's or, right. Okay. So the four people chosen for silhouette, uh, another silhouette by John Lomberg, uh, picks out an 80-year-old woman, a 30-year-old woman, a 12-year-old girl, and a 4-year-old. And they're labeled in the silhouettes with their age and their mass, which John Lomberg feels he has determined to the half kilogram. Yeah, I think that's because they were just trans- translating from pounds. I think that they went for the average uh, weight of a somebody or other, and then. Yeah, I think I think. I, I still think I are, agree that the half pound is not necessary. And and I think you're right that the they're the, they're the averages for a 30 year old woman because I'm sure Nina Lean did not 
record the year in mass, the year in weight of all the people in this photo. Like these are all approximations, I think, based on averages. I would have thought so. Makes sense. And the half kilogram. Yeah, I hadn't noticed the half kilogram until you said that. Actually, (laughs) but yeah, that is weird, especially if it is just an average. I I think it's just a matter of coming from a culture that deals in pounds. Those Americans, (laughs) effectively half kilograms. I, I quite like the big family gathering. I kind of wish that they looked more similar than they do. Like they, to me, they just look like a generic 1940s-ish family. Like uh, you wish you there, there was more of a family resemblance. I, yeah, I wish we were looking at a Habsburg king and his son and his grandson or something ridiculous like that. Some more inbred. <laughs> well, just having, <laughs> having feet, yes. The, so the Habsburgs inbred and they ended up with those chins and those noses so that you always know that it's them. The Habsburg lip. <laughs> yeah. I didn't realize there were five generations until you said that, so I'm, I've just been spending this the past ten minutes trying to uh, figure out who's from which generation. Don't forget generation six in the, in the, in the portraits. It's right. an excellent point because there's only really three generations possibly drawn in the image the silhouette image and yeah that's a good five point. if the youngest one is four okay all you listeners out there look up this photo and follow along with us <laughs> the, the we're gonna call grandma in the chair up front She's got to be generation one, one yeah we're, okay. we're gonna we're gonna generation so the, one. she's and she's if she's 80 ish. Well, I'm, I'm not even. I'm not even going to talk in, about okay. the, the numbers that Lomberg put on. But I, I, now I'm saying, like, who are her children in this photo? I'm guessing the the two uh, guys in work, workers' clothes by the stove behind her. Well, and then there's a woman oh, kneeling next to the twelve year old who could be older than thirty. Because um, we're in looking for dress. somebody who's a grand great wait five generations it's ridiculous it says five generations so so we got to get from grandma in the chair as number one wait wait, great great grandma in the chair okay yeah and then little boy being held by her knee he's going to be generation five he's got to be her great great grandson for this to be five generations i'm not really comfortable with this uh, math but we can do it because uh that's the way it worked in the 20s in the ozarks i guess but I oh, not, think not, not casting shade on the Ozarks. Just no, just in general. Yeah. So we're looking for about, let's guess, a generation gap of 16 to 20 years between one and the other. But even still, if she's 80... But again, that's Lomberg's... Like she could okay, be, so she, she could, could be, be 95. 90. She could be 95. But, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't think we can put any credence well, on and if she's if she's 85, then there's kind of uh, enough 16 to 20s to get down. There's 20s. There's enough 20s to get down to a four-year-old. 60, so 80, 60, 40. Let's say 85, because we want to go. 65, 45, 45, 25, 5. Okay, yeah, that works. I don't see how there's any way there can be three generations between the old woman and the young kid. If you look at the people in this picture, there's not... There's not well, a continuum not like a, that. No way. But, but 1940s people looked it's just different people age. Ha- in the Ozarks, people had harder lives. They were <laughs> in the sun all the time. No one looks like a 20-year-old in the 40s. What really bugs me about this picture is the framing of it. Like They could have zoomed in a bit more on the actual family, but you've got like this dead space around them, and you've even got like a corner of a chair sticking in the well, side of the photo. They want the portraits. 
You want the portraits you for the... You can still zoom in and crop a little off the sides and have the well, portraits take there. take it up with Nina Lee, award-winning photographer. <laughs> what? What? Harsh. <laughs> Harsh. So, propping up the young boy is a woman who could be in, in one generation beneath the old lady... Uh, who's identified as the most elderly. All right, right. so let's so call her two. Let's call her call two. Her and let's say her husband is to the left of the stovepipe, because that guy's looking a little older as well, <laughs> okay. I, I feel. So now we're in, those are like 60-year-olds is our guess. Yeah. And then the 40-year-olds, I would... So the, the, the woman in the apron with her arms folded looking Who's identified as 30 cool, in the... Yeah, but she's probably, she could be 40. Yeah, but, but 65. She could be in her 40s, yeah. Yeah. So let's... And let's assume... She looks like she's 20. <laughs> no. The, the woman in the... The woman kneeling in, next to the 12-year-old. In the white dress could be 20. It looks like she's 12. <laughs> okay. Okay. But let's... Okay, so... Right. So so woman with her arms crossed looking, looking we'll cool. Look, she does look super cool, and actually. There, and there's a guy next favorite. to her who looks like he has his arm around her. Right. So let's assume he's uh, Mr. Cool. <laughs> and I guess there's a guy on the right of the stovepipe. There, there could be just extra uh, family members around, yeah. you know. That's true. There That's could true. be uncles and... No, there, but, we no. don't actually need to have every mom either because you could have lost somebody in childbirth. But, but who, who would you... So Mr. and Mrs. Cool... Who is, who's their offspring? Yeah, so that could be the woman, the girl in the white dress kneeling down. That would right. be my guess. Yeah, I guess that's the only thing that makes sense. And there, there's somebody... Next to Mr. Cool could be a 20-ish dude. Who could be a 20-ish dude. Who could, have be, who could be the father of the small child. There could be more than one branch. Like, this might not That's be... That's right. Because mm-hmm. we have to have 12-year-olds in there, too. And the 12-year-old and the 4-year-old, if we're going every 20 years, the 12-year-old and the 4-year-old should not have the same parents. Again, this photo is available online. <laughs> uh, this discussion yeah, would probably be much better served if you had the photo in front of you. So feel free to find the photo, rewind, listen. Let us know if you agree with our choices. Also, if this is your family, please let us know the actual facts. <laughs> we yeah. we want to know. Is there any information cool. about the family? Well, uh, they're given their name. Oh, they did? No. No, just an Ozark family? Oh, yeah. I thought it was no. oh. I, I could, I, just I the photographer's the, name. Yeah. Very anthropology. <laughs> Some interesting facts about Nina Lean, the photographer. Award-winning. Um, yeah. She uh, was kind of ahead of her time in, a, in the pre-internet days. Uh, a lot of photos of cute animals, including <laughs> uh, if you look up sort of online collections of her works, you will see pictures of like dogs in top hats and cats doing cute things. And she, she published many books of uh, pets and animals. And also, you know, celebrities and things. Like she worked, she sold a lot of stuff to Life magazine, which was, you know, the photojournalist magazine of the mid-20th century in America. And it turns out she believes in aliens. Ah, she believes nice. in OSPs. Uh, so at, when they were clearing the copyrights to all these photos, uh, somebody from the Golden Record team went to the Time Life building in New York City. And it turns out uh, Ms. Lean was there at the time. Oh, great. And there's a quote here. So they said she was more than happy to have her photo included. Um, but she had a sort of bemused uh, reaction to it, and she said, as they quote her, quote, I've been in contact with them for years anyway, but I know they are glad you're doing this. Nice. Well, good. No further comment. No further comment. Hannah, do you have any further comments? I think it's awesome. 
to track 12 from Music of Earth. Track 12 is titled Chakrulo by the Georgian SSR Chorus. It runs 2 minutes and 18 seconds, and it was recorded by Radio Moscow in a national project to encourage folk music. We get a lot of music from, well, not a lot, but this is at least the second uh, music from a country that no longer exists, which is... What was the first one? Zaire. Which oh. is now the, the Central African the oh, Democratic okay. Republic of the Congo, oh, and right. this is from the, what was then the USSR, the Georgian Soviet Soviet Socialist Soviet Republic. Those S's it's gone now. First, yeah, <laughs> it's been a long time. Yeah, it's one of two pieces that they included from the USSR, and we're going to get to the second piece in an episode or two. But that one was from Azerbaijan, which isn't actually that far from Georgia. Boring story alert. In my ill-spent youth, I was in a children's choir, and we went to a big children's choir festival, and there was a Georgian choir there, and they, A, sounded very much like this, uh, they were very cool, and B, they had the coolest uniforms of everybody there. Describe the uniforms for the listener. They were black trousers and black shirts with bandoliers on them with actual bandoliers with bullets wait what is a bandolier it's like what Chewbacca wears oh hot damn (laughs) yeah I they probably weren't actual bullets they were big white things that okay they looked like tampons but (laughs) they they were super cool (laughs) they were super cool they were so they had the coolest outfits they weren't the coolest choir but they did have the coolest outfits and and the, they, but, but the music they sang was very much in keeping with this piece. Like it, it, it sounded of this of a genre. Well, and Eastern European music, to my relatively untutored ears, tends to sound like this: fairly nasal, very close harmony. There's a lot of mysticism in Eastern Orthodox Christianity, and this kind of music in Eastern Orthodox Christianity's churches, because they tend not to have organs. Probably for good reasons that I can't remember now. But anyway, the point of the story is that this is very much representative of the genre. So chakrulo means literally bound up, like you would do with... Like to tie something up? Yeah, like a bushel of hay. Okay. And it also means hard or tough. Whoa. And it's a song, the, the, the lyrics of the song... Do you have the lyrics? Oh, do yeah. I ever. Yeah, so, so the, the song is about an unjust prince doomed by an uprising of peasant farmers. It's real good Soviet stuff. So that double definition of the title applies both ways. Mm. Hannah, would, f- would you like to talk about the lyrics? My favorite lines of this piece translate to, Oh, enemy, come oppress me. I cry not, for crying is the way of women. Ooh, okay. Yeah. Oh, enemy, come oppress me. So that, oh, that's, that was, that's, that's the part you're focusing on. <laughs> Both parts are... <laughs> that kind of was a feature of the choir that I remember from my youth. This, wait, wait, what? They also asked you to oppress them? <laughs> they did not ask it, but they were not very um, feminist or indeed open to feminism. Does it have other lyrics? I have, been, I have been in this state many times, but I have not groaned. Hang on. Let me sharpen my sword pistol. The steel that sparks the fire. Let me use you to cleanly spark that which you have sewn for me. Whoa, whoa, whoa. it had a sword pistol. Not just a sword. Not just a pistol. So this is is basically saying you can you can oppress me, but I you will never defeat me. Okay. So misogyny aside, it's pretty awesome. (laughs) Whoa, whoa, hang on a second though. Yeah. Is it the right choice to send to the aliens? Ooh. 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 Oh, (laughs) become oppressed. (laughs) 
I'm going to say no. <laughs> Again, if these lyrics were in English, would the Golden Record producers have sent them? Well, but as you said, like it's kind of about being badass, right? It's yeah, but we we want the kind of badass that's you will never <laughs> oppress us, not oppress us all you want. We're fine with it. <laughs> <laughs> we're not, we're not going to weep because that's what our women do. <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah that, so if you see them weeping, that's just how they are. Let me say you're oppressing them right. <laughs> so is sword pistol a euphemism? I, well, all of those things are euphemisms in my books, but my books are <laughs> fairly filthy and shouldn't be shown to children. Well, the title is Oh Sword Planted Deep Inside. Oh, God. <laughs> that is not the title definition that I had, Hannah. No. <laughs> oh, yeah, you had the one that was about bound, being bound yeah. up. Yeah. Oh. Bound up like hey. I think this is the same song. <laughs> well, translations can be like that. Translations can be like that. Yeah. So... So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring up this point of ethnomusicology I have that they brought up in Murmurs of Earth, and that is they claim in this piece you can hear elements of, from the traditions of Western classical music, and they say that this supports arguments made by some that the Georgians were the inventors of Western polyphony. Polyphony. I, um, have, I have no insights to that. I read that, the, that polyphony in Georgian music predates the introduction of Christianity in Georgia around the 4th century A.D. Well, that, or whatever it's I called. Think that, I think that supports that argument. Um, yeah. Historically? Sure. The Georgian polyphony is based on the use of dissonant harmony. So polyphony, as we talked about in a previous episode, is when you have a lot of different uh, melodies going together, not just one main thing, but a lots of different voices blending together and overlapping. And the Georgian polyphony uses dissonant harmony so this is like using seconds and fourths and sevenths and nines together which is a much more unpleasant sound than if you're using like a third or a fifth that sound nice and pleasing does that create what i think roby described earlier as a nasally tone no the nasal tone is how it's it's part of the production of the voice rather than the okay. actual than the harmonies they're harmony. producing but it's a value judgment whether it sounds pleasant or not i think <laughs> Because I, I, I really like this song. I think it's, again, I think it's one that might uh, go into my, my general listening. In your playlist? When you hear a dissonant tone, it can shake. You know, you, you feel the, you can feel the shake, especially when it's produced in the way that these, like the, in that nasal way, it, that tends to be quite piercing. So that's part of the reason why this music is so popular is that you really feel it. So if you heard it in a spaceship, what do you think you'd, how do you think you'd feel about it? Um, I guess it would depend on the context. If there was like a big party going on and you heard this, I think it'd be appropriate or like some sort of political rally. Where they were sharpening their sword pistols? Yeah. Their laser yeah. sword pistols? <laughs> Looking for somebody to oppress them, though. And then like, their yeah, I'd feel... blasters? <laughs> yes. <laughs> then I'd feel pretty invigorated by it, I think. But if you woke up in a cell to this... To me, it sounds fairly martial. I think it's partly that it's like a whole bunch of guys going, yeah. you know. Yeah, and singing, it makes you want to do stuff. Yeah, and they're singing, as we said, these very intense lyrics. Yeah, they could be singing a love song though. Like I, I, I don't know, right? <laughs> these I know from nothing, so I can't. Euphemistically, tell. a love song, but like, maybe they song. love to be oppressed. <laughs> All right. Let's not discuss their kinks. Mm-hmm. 
Thanks for listening to Earth's Mixtape. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode. Please rate and review us on iTunes, and maybe we will read your name on a future episode. Reviews will help people find out about the podcast, and maybe tell your friends about us. This week, we'd like to thank Jason Fields and Nora Valentino, who are among the many people who have tweeted about the show. Did we make a mistake or an omission? Heck yeah, we did. Let us know all about it on Twitter and Instagram. We're at Earth's Mixtape. Or email us at earthsmixtape at gmail.com. Earth's Mixtape is produced at St. Mary's University in beautiful Halifax, Nova Scotia, Canada.